0: This is a podcast for Function and Ecology at British Ecological Society publication. Hi everyone, today I'm delighted to welcome Will A. Strike to the podcast. He is a postdoctoral fellow at Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute in the USA. He's earned his PhD in biology from Stanford University as well as a master's and bachelor's degree in environmental engineering from Northwestern University. He has also previously held positions at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and the Natural Resources Defence Council. He has authored over 20 papers, and at MBARI, he is investigating how social information and oceanographic drivers influence the behaviour of both predator, blue whales, and prey, krill, groups in Apache and dynamic marine ecosystems. So today, on top of finding out more about Will, we're going to be discussing his 2022 Functional Ecology Research article, Acoustic Signature Reveals Blue Whales' Tune Life History Transitions to Oceanographic Conditions. So hello, Will. Hello. Thanks for having me, Frank. Uh, Thank you for your time. We're really, really excited to be um, chatting about blue whale songs, which is, yeah, conventionally not what people probably associate. But before we get into all that, I wanted to start... Just with introductions. So, who you? Who are you? Where are you from? What are your research interests? And how did you come to study blue whales? How did you come to become an ecologist?
1: Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the introduction you read off there uh, speaks well to my background, kind of on paper, um, in terms of kind of behind what's on the CV. How I ended up here. I have a background really in oceanographic research, that's uh, what I was doing between my master's and my PhD, understanding physical and biological variability in the open ocean. Um, And that sort of background and my longstanding just general interest in animal behavior made me really want to put those things together, understanding, you know, there are animals that are migrating or moving nomadically through these open ocean ecosystems. Uh, How are they responding to the incredibly dynamic and variable habitat that they live in. And then, you know, looking forward, what does that mean for their ability to adapt to long-term changes in the ecosystems they're inhabiting? So that's kind of the mindset that I brought to uh, my PhD program in biology. Um, I was originally uh, intending to study this in a migratory fishes context, wanting to have that connection to fisheries management. But uh, honestly, I I met one of my co-authors on the study, Dr. John Ryan at MBARI, Uh, early in my PhD. And he really uh, turned me on to the amazing world of bioacoustics. And especially thinking about how oceanic ecosystems, we have such a challenging time observing the behavior of animals continuously through time and how valuable of a tool this can be. Um, Mm -hmm. And I really uh, bought that and leaned into it hard during my PhD and took a hard left turn into whale bioacoustics that was totally unexpected. Uh, Eventually brought it back around to the oceanographic variability in animal behavior but yeah i mean it's an incredibly uh i feel incredibly fortunate and privileged to have had that opportunity to study such a fascinating and frankly charismatic uh creature
0: mm-hmm. yeah so uh, before we spoke i had always assumed that people who worked with whales were sort of sold on you know the all those like one of the first truly effective global protests, right? Or, you know, against whaling and that. Uh, But it sounds like that that wasn't your kind of journey. So what, well, first, would you like to mention what your favourite study organism is?
1: Yeah, you know, I this is i'm leaning into a theme here of just loving the bioacoustics world but um honestly i've really become obsessed with bats <laughs> they're a little bit more accessible in a lot of ways than blue whales you know you can see them in your neighborhood at sundown or sunrise and with the interest in acoustics and using acoustics to study animal behavior got really fascinated really just you know being a total fan of bat research basically not a really an active participant um Started recording using an ultrasonic microphone in the backyard, but um, more as a hobbyist and following along the amazing research that people are doing around the world on those animals. But I, I just really appreciate that because you can, to some degree, see the animals that you're recording, even though you can't hear the animals that you're recording, given that it's above our human hearing range. And there's something about that mix of, of factors that really draws me into them, but also has a lot of connections to the work that I actually do uh, on bioacoustics in the ocean. Yeah, so that's kind of been a newfound favorite organism, I guess, uh, since getting into the bioacoustics work. But yeah, to your question about kind of the journey into working on whales, yeah, I think the the sort of background that you outlined of what you might expect is one that I've gotten before in conversations with people of that expectation. And to be honest, that's just really, yeah, no harm in that that approach to things, but not uh, really how I came to it. I really grew up in uh, the middle of the country really not anywhere near the ocean and to me i think some of the fascination with all of these sorts of questions it really comes from a place of these feeling like very alien ecosystems to me um but then once you start to study them realizing in how many ways they really are similar to ways that we think about you know our own lives and our own behavior or the behavior of perhaps more familiar organisms um, although, as we discuss in the paper, and maybe we'll get into a little bit later, some really notable differences about just what it means to be living in a liquid medium and what that means for how you make behavioral decisions.
0: Mm-hmm. Fabulous, yeah. Well, we'll get onto that. I mean, being able to study the behavior of, a, of an organism through sound—I mean, it's like alchemy or something, right? You're kind of taking something that, and you're able to not just infer but work out so much around it. But we'll, we'll get onto that in a second. So, just to set the tone for the podcast. Uh, quick sound pun um, we're gonna be playing recording of something um, so we're gonna play that for the listeners listeners now <laughs>
1: just heard is a recording um, from an uh, underwater microphone or hydrophone that's positioned uh, in outer Monterey Bay here in the central California coast. And that was a recor- recording of a blue whale song that was sped up by 10 times to bring it more into uh, middle of our human hearing range. Uh, the frequencies or pitches that these animals are producing sounds at are extremely low frequency, right around the lower limit of our human hearing. Um, so without really nice headphones or speakers, they can be really hard to hear. Speeding it up helps us, one, hear them more clearly, but I think also it helps us hear the structure of the song more clearly. Uh, these songs play out over you know, minutes of time, and occasionally when these animals go into really long bouts of song, can play out over hours of time. Uh, so to bring that a little bit more into human time reference frame, uh, to get a sense of the structure there, that speed up helps. Hey, okay, yeah and I was wondering if you
0: could um, before we just talk about the paper if you could talk about the differences between sound and song what was that song sort of indicating what what did it mean um, yeah just dig into that a little bit for me.
1: Absolutely yeah so you know there's a lot of different terminology that gets used in the bioacoustics world particularly in animal behavior, and bioacoustics. And there's not always, and I'm guilty of this myself, consistency in the terminology we use, but kind of generally speaking, I would say that uh, song really is a subset of the sounds that blue whales make. So around the world, blue whales in different populations make different types of sounds but here in the northeast pacific ocean uh, the population that we were studying makes really two main categories of sounds there's different call types that have been creatively uh, labeled with letters uh, a b c and d and those a b and c calls are what we heard in the recording in a repeated pattern uh, they take these three different call types and they string them together in these long repeated patterns that we refer to as song. The calls are sort of a separate, more variable, less stereotyped and patterned sound that these animals make in uh, different behavioral settings. So um, specific to blue whales, the uh, songs that they produce are thought to come only from males. Um, this is, you know, based on relatively limited sample. It's uh, often challenging to know uh, what sex the animal that you're observing or uh, listening to is, um, but there's some pretty compelling evidence that this is a male behavior. And the function really is not fully known because it's thought to be a male-specific behavior. The leading sort of theories on on why these animals are singing is, uh, one, as sort of a, a sexual, a secondary sex characteristic uh, meant to attract mate uh the other is sort of the other side of this uh mating sort of consideration of perhaps it's a territorial behavior um that these animals are using the sound um some sort of display to other males um yeah so there there really is some uh uncertainty over exactly what these sounds mean and that ended up being a really big part of this paper of okay sure we're hearing the sounds of these animals we're analyzing and doing statistics on their patterns through time but from a behavioral standpoint what are we really measuring and that was a big part of this wonderful right
0: so let's let's dig into it um so can you in plainish terms explain the novelty of the paper and what it contributes to our understanding of life history transitions
1: yeah absolutely um Before getting into that, maybe I'll give a slight bit of useful background, I think, that comes from a closely related earlier paper that we published a couple of years prior, really digging into what I was getting at in the last answer about the behavioral context of song. The study that we published in Functional Ecology in 2022 um, uses as the primary data source six plus years of continuous audio recording at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute's underwater hydrophone. Prior to that, um, in this previous paper, we really wanted to get a sense of what the behavioral context for those songs was. Um, So to study this, we combined sort of this regional population level understanding of when blue whales are singing from the hydrophone with a very individual level understanding of when animals are singing by placing uh, instruments directly on the backs of these animals attached via suction cups, listening to the sounds that they're making. Uh, alongside other elements of their behavior, their dive patterns, uh, when they're opening their mouths to feed, how they're moving in two dimensions. Are they in foraging mode here in Monterey Bay, or are they passing through on their migration south to their breeding grounds? And so what we found in that paper is that there actually is a pretty clear seasonal cycle in the time of day that these animals are singing. So that came from the hydrophone, looking at this population-level view. We were hearing uh, during the summer and early fall Almost entirely song during the uh, nighttime uh, the, is when we're hearing from this really broad sampling range of you know ten thousand plus square kilometers that we can hear these animals over. And what we noticed is that as the amount of song these animals are producing peaks in uh, you know late October, early November, typically we noticed that the twenty-four hour patterns of their song started to change. It wasn't this really strong nighttime bias. We started to hear song more throughout the day, and so that kind of jumped out of the page as when we first are doing these analysis of, okay, the peak in song is lining up with a total shift in when they're singing. Um, there must be some behavioral correlate there, like what else is going on in the behavior of these animals that might drive that shift in when they're singing. Um, and that's where the t- suction cup tags helped us uh, sort of unpack this puzzle. Um, we What we found is that, you know, animals that are in this feeding mode, they're up here during the summer and fall packing on as many pounds as they can, feeding intensively on dense swarms of krill. They spend all day pretty much uh, diving to depth, feeding on these dense aggregations of krill. And what we found is that during the night appears to be when they stop feeding and they spend much more of their time singing. Uh, so there's this really clear day-night delineation of feeding in the day, singing at night. But what we found with animals that had finished their feeding season, they've entered this transitionary phase where they're going to migrate south for the winter Uh, They're heading to the waters off of Central America where they will give birth and rear their young and feed very sparingly um, during that time. Uh, As they're transitioning to that southward migration, that's when we started to hear them spreading their songs more evenly throughout the day and the night. So, when we got these really robust results at the individual level, we were able to then turn back to our population level metrics from the hydrophone and realize that what we're hearing is the population switching from feeding season to the migratory and breeding season. So with that information in hand, then to me, as I mentioned at the outset of the podcast, I'm really interested in variability in oceanic ecosystems, how animals respond and adapt to that variability. A natural follow-up question was, okay, we can hear the population switching to migration now. So how flexible are they? In that, depending on what's going on in any given year, we have a really strong seasonal cycle in the ecosystem here off the coast of California. Uh, We have really intense northwesterly winds that happen in the spring and the summer that cause upwelling. That's the offshore movement of surface waters that are replaced by these deep, cool, nutrient-rich waters, which really just inject nutrients into the base of the ecosystem, leading to this incredible bloom of life throughout uh, the food web. And blue whales are here in the summer and the fall to take advantage of the incredible density of uh, krill that that upwelling supports. So what we chose to investigate in the functional ecology paper was uh, an investigation of the varying seasonality throughout years of this ecosystem. When was upwelling occurring and how intense was that upwelling? And then in response to that, were blue whales uh, being very fixed or flexible in their migrations? And if they were being flexible, in what ways, basically? Um, And what we found is that this ecosystem does vary quite a bit year to year in its seasonality and blue whales respond accordingly and when they choose to migrate. So in years where we have much more Uh, intense, much stronger upwelling that peaks much later in the year. Blue whales uh, stay here feeding longer and we hear this migratory transition through their songs later in the year. Uh, Whereas years when the upwelling occurs primarily earlier and is somewhat weaker, we hear these animals transitioning to their migration earlier in the year. And so this may seem like a sort of obvious thing, like, you know, when the feeding's better, you stay longer and you migrate later. But um, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this result is that it suggests that these animals are able to sense how much food is available to them over an enormous and extremely patchy potential foraging arena, if you will. Really the area that these animals are feeding in is all the way from, you know, the US-Mexico border up to, you know, southern British Columbia and anywhere from a few to perhaps a hundred miles offshore. I mean, this is an enormous Potential area in which you're, they're searching for these incredibly dense swarms of krill that are really the only food patches that are suitable to their body size and to their feeding mode of a lunge feeding and filtering out these krill. So it did strike me as I, honestly somewhat unexpected and pretty remarkable that these animals are in some way sensing that environmental seasonality and responding accordingly even though the food source they're looking for is really like a needle in a haystack. So that's one of the things that I think is remarkable about this result is that they're doing some sort of sensing that's incredibly flexible uh, to respond to the dynamic environment that they're living in. And I'll also just uh, wrap up this answer to note that this is very different from their strategy when they're migrating north into their feeding grounds. So in this study, we were exploring how they migrate away from their feeding grounds. Uh, They're southward breeding migration, but when they're coming back in the spring from their breeding grounds, previous work um, from one of my co-authors, Brianna Abrams, showed that they're actually extremely consistent in when they show up coming in this direction from the south to to the foraging grounds. And that, I think, really is highly suggestive that these animals are queuing on something in the environment during the feeding season that allows them to be flexible in when they leave. Whereas when they're showing up, they are coming with no information, right? So it makes sense to play the odds, if you will. Be consistent when you come. Track long-term averages rather than individual years' conditions. But when they're deciding when to leave, they're just working with so much more information. They've been feeding in this ecosystem. They have a sense of what the foraging conditions are like in this year. Is this a good year? Is it a bad year for krill? Um, And as we speculate in the paper... They're also hearing each other and uh, the song patterns that other animals are producing. So if we can hear whether animals are feeding or migrating, it would suggest that blue whales can hear this you know, daily pattern as well. Um, they have a sense of what other animals are doing. So let's say you're a blue whale and you're struggling to find krill and you might think this is not a good feeding year, but all of the song that you're hearing for hundreds of kilometers around you is the feeding pattern of song. It might be really useful information to an individual well to say, okay, well, feeding isn't good specifically where I am, but it's not time to migrate yet. There there still is food to be found in this ecosystem. Um, So that's getting more into the um, speculative parts of the paper and some of the things that we're following up on, working on now. But um, yeah, I'll pause there. That that was a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. That's incredible. Like a starting pistol or, you know, just sort of firing up flares i've got all these images in my head of (laughs) of um sort of an interconnected network because i think one thing i wanted to ask about especially with relation to sound is how do you pull back from anthropomorphizing and you know there, there must be a very gray area in there where you're trying not to infer things that humans would you know infer from the information so like you said that's a speculation but what is evidence behind that speculation
1: it's a great question and I, I think it's kind of gets to a long standing question in really like social behavior in animal groups is why share information? Right. There's there's this desire, I think, as humans to say, oh, they're sharing information about whether they're feeding or migrating. That's the function of song. Like it helps them have a more optimal timing of migration. But there's from an evolutionary standpoint, it's like, is there really an incentive for an animal to be sharing this information with competitors? Right. And so I think that that's something that we've thought about a lot, uh, myself and collaborators of, okay, that's a potentially interesting and sort of charismatic sort of interpretation of these results. But what would be the benefit of that um, to individuals or, you know, to the population? I think it's this is something we're really digging into now, primarily from a computational and more theoretical perspective, uh, working agent-based models. Um, i been working closely with my collaborator, uh, Stephanie Dodson. She's a, a mathematician at Colby College. And then we've been digging into this, exactly this question of, okay, are there alternative explanations for this flexibility? Um, how useful is that information actually to these animals? Does it give them more information than they can gain in their own exploratory movements of the foraging habitat. And one potentially interesting explanation that I think of here is that it comes back to what I was talking about earlier about the what's thought to be the function of song, it being perhaps a mating display or a territorial display. There could be this idea that I intrigued it dig into more that uh, this information on whether animals are feeding or migrating and sort of that network that you were referencing could be a secondary outcome of what really is not the intended use of song. So if males are singing for some totally different reason that's related to reproduction or territoriality, but it has secondary, when they're producing that song, has secondary information on what they're doing, uh, you could see this being uh, really an unintentional Sharing of information that individuals can eavesdrop on. You know, these sounds, they evolved to sing these songs for a reason, uh, of course, and they're extremely loud, low frequency sounds that can be heard over hundreds of kilometers in the ocean. So it, it really is tempting to lean into that explanation of, okay, they're sharing information, right? But even if they're not intentionally sharing information, they're still putting information into the environment that could. be useful and it's so incredibly useful to us as researchers that it just really (laughs) is tempting to infer that it would be useful to the animals themselves in terms of making decisions Um, but this really is the follow-up work that we're working on in my uh postdoc at Mbari, thinking about you know how feasible are those explanations what are some of the potential evolutionary drivers of dynamics like that or other explanations for these patterns um and then of course that what role uh krill behavior plays in this whole puzzle that's a, a part of things that we didn't get into as much in the functional ecology
0: paper i always ask ecologists to get their crystal ball out and they always hate it when i when i ask them to um but i want to ask where should you've already dug into where the research should be directed next so on a more kind of holistic angle um what changes do you hope your work will precipitate? What, where, where would you like the field to be moving towards? And yeah, just about the future of blue whales in general. If you can talk on that, um, are we are we seeing a bounce back from previous kind of very high threat levels, or what's what's going on there?
1: Yeah, I guess I can take this answer in a couple of different lanes. I guess first I'll zoom way out and go, you know, beyond blue whales, but more towards. Uh, you know, animal migration and behavioral and movement ecology. Um, I think one of the things I learned, as I mentioned, you know, how I came to working on bioacoustics is just this really relatively newfound appreciation I have for how valuable of a tool that is for movement ecology and really behavioral ecology and oceanic ecosystems that we've really struggled to ask and answer these sorts of questions in historically. And so, yeah, that's really become a central part of how I think about my research now, and I hope it can be uh, influential on how some others think about research is just how valuable this approach can be um, for connecting levels of biological organization in behavioral and movement ecology. There's kind of this, you know, classical idea In ecology that what we're doing is trying to connect patterns across scale and so much of the sort of research on behavior especially as it relates to migration really is about individual level behavior Um, and there really has been this emerging field of you know collective behavior and collective migrations Um, and I think to really understand dynamics in that field we need this cross scale inquiry these individual level understanding of how animals make decisions but also Uh, How that plays out in similar and sometimes uh, confoundingly different ways when you start to scale up to groups and populations of animals. And that's where I think these bioacoustic tools really are incredibly valuable. Um, They give us inherently that perspective, especially in the ocean Mm -hmm. where sound travels so far and so fast. Uh, They give us a really a more like regional to you know population level view on behavior of course you know they at times can obscure individual level patterns so that's you know why i mentioned that tagging based study to give individual level context for population level patterns but i guess i'm really excited about the potential for synthesis across those individual and group and population levels and how that can improve our understanding of really what's uh, driving the patterns that we observe how animals make decisions and how those things change depending on the scale of observation. I guess more specific to the blue whales, um, one of the things that comes out of this study for me is a real appreciation for how adaptable these animals are <laughs> to oceanographic variability. I think there are very valid and real concerns from a conservation and you know just viability of population standpoint for a lot of these large whale species that were hunted nearly to extinction um, not that long ago. <laughs> Um, and so certainly not suggesting, oh, they're, you know, they're fine. They'll they'll figure it out. There's especially threats to a a specialist predator, like a blue whale that only feeds on one prey item, doesn't have a lot of flexibility in terms of foraging strategy Mm -hmm. or preferred prey or things like that. But, uh, I will say that the results of the study are encouraging in some senses to suggest, okay, maybe they can't switch what they're eating, but they can, uh, switch what time of year they're, you know. Uh, foraging and migrating, etc.
0: Fantastic. Right. So just quickly to wrap up, I'd like to ask if you'd like to give any shout outs, anyone, anyone or anything that's helped you along the way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every one of the co-authors on this Functional Ecology paper deserves a massive shout out. I mentioned Brianna Abrams at one point in her work on the memory-based northward migration of blue elves. That work was really um, a big part of the inspiration for this study, and she was extremely helpful in helping to understand the patterns we're observing here. Uh, My co-author, Megan McKenna, is an expert in bioacoustics, who I always learn a lot from. Larry Crowder, one of my PhD advisors, really just a great holistic understanding of behavior and how that relates to resource management and conservation issues. Uh, Jeremy Goldbogen runs the lab that has done all of this tagging work. Uh, which is outstanding and really just a remarkable data set to provide that individual level context. And then finally, John Ryan, who I've mentioned several times, he's my postdoc advisor um, and really has been the driving force behind this incredible long-term passive acoustic monitoring program at Mbari. So lots of folks to thank.
0: Fantastic. That's great. Yeah, it's a collaborative project, isn't it? So just to wrap up, I'd like to let everyone know that um, the paper and the plain language summary will be in the description. This will be transcribed for anyone hard of hearing. And yeah, I'd just like to really thank Will for his time um, and I hope everyone's found it as fascinating as I have. Thank you, Will.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's really fun to chat about this.